On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. to part six of the Ackerman year. We are six months in. I'm joined as always by Kate Redebaum. My name is Simon Howell and our special guest this week is the artistic director at Indie Memphis Film Festival. It's Miriam Bale. Hi Simon and Kate. So nice to see you again. So nice to be back on the podcast for this new topic. Yay! Uh, so we are once again we've we've this there's sort of been a, a, a mini current in our last few episodes where we're talking a lot about Ackerman and comedy, and I think it's going to sort of I don't know if it's going to peak this month, but we're certainly hitting a peak of a certain kind uh, as we talk about uh, three uh, once again. I feel like I'm I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but three once again very very different projects in every possible respect: format, mode of production, budget, etc. Um, we're going to start out by uh, talking about. Ackerman's, I guess, most probably widely seen by many audiences film, A uh, Couch in New York, starring Juliette Pinoche and William Hurt. Uh, we'll also be talking about uh, L'Homme à la Valise, which is a 60-minute uh, feature, short, medium-length t- uh, TV project from 1984, right? Do I have that mm-hmm. right, Kate? Yeah, I think so. And uh, we'll also be talking about a, uh, a short called uh, La Jour Où, uh, which she made uh, directly after A Couch in New York and uh, sort of exists, can't help but exist in relation to that. But I believe we have some other notes to cover first, Kate. Yeah, so um, I think we just had it on our spreadsheet list to make sure that we covered, uh, that I mentioned two films that we will not really be able to discuss in detail on the podcast because uh, we cannot access them. Um, and one, it maybe makes sense just to acknowledge it and not discuss it in detail anyway. But the first one that I wanted to mention was Ackerman's film, New York, New York Biz, B-I-S, um, B, uh, which was a 19, another film made in 1984. Uh, and this film has been lost. And it's a film of Ackerman's that I've had a hard time finding really anything about. The only, I found two descriptions of it that are brief. So first, it was a 35 mil film shot in black and white with sound. It was only eight minutes long. Um, and Ackerman told Nicole Brené in the pajama interview that she did in Lola magazine, um, she called it her third suicide film with uh, Soma V being the first one and then Letters Home uh, with Sylvia Plath being the other one. Um, and then she described this one as about herself. So I've also heard her describe it somewhere else um, by saying, I made that film for myself. I arrive in New York. I go see a friend. I arrive in her apartment. She says, wait, I'm a bit busy. And then I kill myself. <laughs> so, you know, it seemed like a weighty. I, I actually have no idea if it was meant to be kind of funny or what the deal was with that film, but we at least wanted to describe it. Uh, and then the other film that we won't get to talk about too much in detail uh, is a film called Hotel des Acacias, uh, which was a film that was produced when Ackerman was a lecturer at the um, INSAS Audiovisual College in Belgium in 1982. 
So she like designed this exercise for four directing students to uh, undertake, and they produced this film together with her kind of overseeing it. Um, and of course, apparently it's sort of her influence is very felt on the film. And you can see photos from the film that um, very much make it look like something like Tutu Nui. Um, and the description that Adam Roberts gives for the film is several young men and women arrive one after the other at Hotel des Acacias, full of hope, desire and vitality. In the bustle of this hotel, everyone is looking for love. So again, you could see how it might be linked to uh, to Tutu Nui. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we won't be able to talk about this any more than that. But we just wanted to throw them in there to kind of uh, achieve our completest Yes, we have to hit 100% podcast. completion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But then for this week, though, or for this month, we're talking more specifically about comedy. And the funny thing is, is when I put these films together as the comedy is, I had not seen Man with a Suitcase in years and I had not seen Couch in New York in years. And then we, I picked the other one, Le Jour Ou, um, based on someone else's description of it as a kind of like light comic film, not having seen it. And so we've ended up with a really interesting mix of films this week. They're actually quite different from each other, but I think it's going to be a great way to like explore what Ackerman's interest in comedy is or what her approach to something like comedy is. Um, yeah. So I don't know, Simon, do you want to start us off with the, uh, question or anything my most straightforward question is how did uh, a couch in new york her uh, mostly english language uh, romantic comedy featuring you know an airport scene and a cute dog and everyone getting a best friend they can talk to how did this happen how did we get here um I can give some I can give some uh, background on the the film, but I'm realizing that we skipped our normal introductory question for our guest, which is to ask. Uh, oh yes, Miriam. Yeah, to ask Miriam like sort of what your relationship is with Ackerman, like how you came to know her work and and what your history is with her. Wow. Yeah, uh, my interest in film came through my interest in feminism, so they've always been really linked for me, and um, so. Uh, Jean Delman was unavailable when I was growing up and when I was really interested and I was reading about it. And, and then I finally saw like a VHS copy, which I just like can remember every detail of that experience. And then finally it was restored and I saw it. So, um, uh, so Jean Delman was like the, um, you know, was a sort of Holy grail of this feminist film that I was reading about. And then, um, uh, around the same time Jean Dielman was restored, I guess that was around like 2007 or something like that, or two, 2008. And um, then some of the, her other films become, became more available um, and I was able to catch up. So like since then, since like 2007, I've had a Google alert for Chantal Ackerman, which I have not deleted. <laughs> so I get a weekly Google alert for everything Chantal Ackerman. I've also got a weekly Google alert for all things feminist film. And so I'm also very aware of, of um, Chantal Ackerman's um, sort of um, ambivalence or even sort of derision about being lumped in with feminist film. I think I I got a chance to briefly meet her for Almayer's Folly, which was great. Yeah, because it opened at the Museum of Moving Image, I think, for their festival, Um, uh, which name I've just forgotten. But it was, you know, that film is so good. And from what I understand, it did not 
it just didn't get the festival run that it deserved. And yeah, it so didn't meeting, get much critical traction. No, I mean, or even festivals. Like it was, it was, um, it was unappreciated. And I think you could feel some of her frustration at that moment. So um, I think that was my brief. You know, I think I met her briefly. She wanted to go outside for a cigarette. There's nothing really to tell, you know. But um, uh, yeah, so she's been. Um, she's uh weekly in my in my gmail (laughs) (laughs) that's good yeah i feel like i actually haven't mentioned it here but i i will this will be a regret of mine for my whole life i missed meeting her on two separate occasions like very briefly like i just i missed it and it was so rough like the first time she was presenting films in boston um right before i ended up moving there actually but i i trekked down to boston from montreal to see some of the films at the mit list gallery and missed her by two days because she'd finished presenting and then years later uh one of my colleagues at harvard has been a longtime friend of hers and didn't let me know that ackerman was in town until after she'd left (laughs) which was so rough. And so it wasn't done maliciously on purpose or whatever. It's just the person didn't think of it, but I really, I really wish I could have met her. Um, but whatever, we can talk about that later because Ackerman taught at Harvard. So there'll be more to say about that when we talk about um, Sud. But uh, anyway, yeah, so we can transition here to talking about Couch in New York. Um, yeah, tell us yeah. about it, Kate. How did this movie happen? <laughs> Dr. Harrison. Dr. Harrison, why did you say goodbye so loud? I can't stand it anymore. I, I need you. You do everything on purpose, even sighing. How can you ever be 100% sure that you don't stink? Dr. Henry Harrison needed a vacation. Oh, sir, 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 this way, this way. Hurry. So he swapped his New York apartment for one in Paris. But while Henry was losing his patience in Paris, his New York tenant, Beatrice. I, I need help was winning what did your shrink say to you sometimes he would go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he would also say oh yes and when he returned home sooner than expected you're back um no he found his patience uh, same time next week yes he looks better he's completely changed his ex-fiance so you're not the maid <laughs> His doorman and even his dog. I thought he might miss me. Not at all. He's completely changed. In love with Beatrice. <laughs> well, it was interesting because I feel like I needed to really research to find out some of the backstory about this because I'd heard for a long time that the production was sort of troubled, but I'd never actually heard specifics as to what that meant. Um, and I still don't have maybe the best specifics, but I found out some things. Um, so, of course, this film was Ackerman's first uh, feature fiction film that she'd made since Night and Day, which we talked about last month, um, which was four years prior. So we're in 1995 now or 1994 when they were shooting. Um, and it's obviously continuing kind of her interest in accessibility or sort of trying to make something for a mainstream audience. Um, her father actually was dying at the time that she was writing this project. And as, as I think we've mentioned before, some of her interest in having a hit came from actually the sort of pressure from her father around Ackerman not uh, having been born a boy and not being able to... Um, uh, kind of continue the name in that way. And so for her, making a popular film was meant to be a kind of trade-off for her father. So anyway, that's in the background. She kind of talks about trying to write this funny, light script as a way to kind of deal with the pain of her father dying. As she says, most Jewish jokes, sorry, most Jewish jokes are born out of unbearable pain. Um, so that's one thing that's happening in the background. 
Um, she, the other kind of impetus for the project was that Juliette Binoche had asked her to write something for her kind of comedy for Binoche to be in. And then I think Ackerman knew that Binoche wanted to kind of break into America and Ackerman of course goes back and forth to New York. And so she wanted to write something that would allow them to shoot ostensibly in New York. And anyway, so this was, this was the kind of like early wheels turning that made the project happen. And then Oh, and they managed to get William Hurt to be in it because they knew Sandrine Bonaire and Sandrine Bonaire was William Hurt's partner, I think, at the time. Um, so they had this big international cast. She was able to get a much bigger budget than she normally works with. Um, most of it was shot in studio, actually, in East Berlin at the Babelsberg studio where films like Metropolis were shot. So we can maybe come back to that later. Um, and some of it was shot on location in New York, obviously. But um, anyway, so the other kind of bits and pieces to say about the background here is that... Uh, Ackerman, Claire Atherton, her editor, tells a bit of a, an anecdote about how uh, Atherton started editing as Ackerman was shooting. And she was surprised because Ackerman was sending so much more footage than Ackerman would normally send. And, Ac and Atherton asked her about it. And uh, Ackerman explained, so because there's such this huge financial stake in the film, I was told I had to do a lot of, sh a lot of shooting for coverage. Um, but she said to Atherton, but this is no longer a cover. It's a pile of comforters and I'm suffocating under these comforters. <laughs> That's such a good quote. That's amazing. So clearly like she's talked about it just being a very complicated shoot. So I think it's not that Ackerman wasn't used to working on a larger scale, but I think she chafed specifically under the kind of like studio expectations about a certain mode of filmmaking. I don't think worked very well with her. So that was part of it. And then the other part of it, and she is very open about this is that she just had a really difficult time with the actors. I think she really specifically did not get along with Binoche. Um, I think in her words, you know, she's like, Binoche is someone who seems like she's laughing all the time, but in reality is as cold as an ice cube. <laughs> so we did not get along. Um, and, and her too. I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard her comment on the relationship with her while shooting, but I've heard other people say that it's, um, that she just had a difficult time directing both of them. And then apparently when the film came out, and we'll probably have cause to talk about this a lot, the immediate press reaction right out of the gate was bad. So the film, I, I actually forgot to double check this, but I think the film played at Cannes, or it was supposed to play at Cannes. And then um, it was supposed to sort of get wide distribution, but all right from the beginning, that kind of became an issue. Uh, and because the press reacted so negatively to it, to it right early on, neither Hurt nor Binoche wanted to do press for the film, according to Ackerman. So they really retreated. Um, and Ackerman felt really let down by that and is still kind of like openly critical of them many years later. And so it's... Um, Anyway, it just seemed like a mess. And in the years after the film, Ackerman has distanced herself from it. She calls it her most disastrous experience as a filmmaker. Um, she felt like she had kind of lost sight of her own like aesthetic project. I think as she said, I had left the minor that Deleuze speaks of. Uh, all I produced was noise. Um, with The Couch in New York, I had stopped dwelling on that nothing that my mother talks about when she says there's nothing to add. So for her, I think she talks about it very much as a kind of misbegotten project. Um, although I do think she took, I do think she took some comfort from the fact that, according to her, you know, critics rehabilitated it a little bit later. And so we can keep talking about this question of like the film status, but just to be unequivocal about it, the film really was a major critical and financial flop, like the biggest of Ackerman's career. Um, so <laughs> that's the uh, the opening. <laughs> Should we talk about the plot a little bit, just for people who haven't seen it? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, William Hurt plays uh, um, a, a, a psychiatrist and analyst in New York with a very 
amazing minimalist aesthetic of the phone that he has and he's sick of his his neurotic patients so he decides to do a, a swap um with a, an apartment in paris which ends up being a dancer juliette binoche's apartment which is in a very sort of a tiny part compartment with pigeons and holes and noise and <laughs> it doesn't suit him and uh, and so there's a, it's a very typical kind of um screwball comedy setup very different people and coming together and um and yeah it doesn't quite work um but what doesn't work and what does work is interesting and I think what I mean I think that's that's interesting I've I'd heard that about Binoche and I love her as an actress but she really feels like not of this film for some reason like there's nothing that she I don't know I mean she's wonderful and she's beautiful but she just doesn't seem to I mean she definitely doesn't have that kind of yeah the she's uh it's not a good fit and maybe it had to i that i think the comment that you said she said is perfect and then william hurt is um well i think he can be so comedic but he's very he's like the ultimate wasp isn't he in some films like the sort of like in in a lot of the films that i you know like a broadcast news or um or um you know a lot of those films uh, he's like he's he's very waspy and he's very slow and he has this wonderful way of moving and and uh i think that ackerman you know i i've mentioned this to you guys before but i think i always think of ackerman as a lot of her projects as very specifically like working in a jewish comic tradition and um, you can see little bits of that in this film with some of the patients, for instance, and some of their little, some of their uh, neurotic mo- monologues and some of these, and some of the pace. And yeah, it doesn't, it just, it, William Hurt is the opposite. You can't, you can't, he's, um, he's, a, he's a, I think it's a misfit as far as the, the main cast, but um, it's a, um, and uh, and so much of that because screwball comedy, so much of that is pacing. And when you have someone who's just sort of frozen, like I feel like Juliet Binoche is for some reason, and then you have someone who's very slow, it doesn't work with we see in like the man with a suitcase. This like really fast paced comedy that I think works so well with her. So I can see why she felt like she lost the reins if that if like what was funding it were totally a misfit for the film the um the the moment in binoche's performance that i actually think is the best fit for ackerman's um whole like comic vibe is actually the first shot that that she's in when when we can't quite see her yet we just see that she's kind of bopping around and she's got a a newspaper in front of her face so we can see like her her head bobbing up and down just oh and it's just a really goofy introduction and that shot totally feels like of a piece with family mat uh, family business or something like that but then it you know the paper falls and we see oh it's movie star Juliette Binoche not Chantal Ackerman and it's like oh okay we're in this now um which I just thought was a kind of almost a funny meta moment that I probably probably was not intentional 
Yeah, I mean, well, so okay, already we're like right into a ton of things that that are super interesting about this film. I mean, well, A, I should say that I feel like having read a number of critics on this film, I do feel like there's a weird split with Binoche where I feel like critics either think she's the best thing about the film or they think she really doesn't work. I feel like I kind of, I like her in the film and, and maybe I should just lay my cards on the table, which is that I do remember the first time seeing this film years ago agreeing with what a lot of the critics kind of say about it, which is that it's a flat film, that it just doesn't work as what it's trying to do. Um, but as is so often the case with me on this podcast, I feel like I watch the films again and I read more about them and then I often change my mind about them. And I, I rewatching the film this time, I was surprised at how much I just enjoyed it. Like mm -hmm. kind of really surely enjoyed it. And so that's not a critical defense and I'll say more about why I love the film. But I do think that it's maybe worth noting that I, the film maybe grows on you. It's It doesn't... I think particularly because it is Ackerman, and this is part of what people have said about the film from the beginning, is that it is very much Ackerman, on the one hand, attempting to work in a mainstream romantic comedy, Hollywood studio film style of filmmaking. But then on the other hand, she is resolutely not giving up her kind of avant-garde modernist tendencies. And here it creates such a weird soup that does mm. not always it, it's not always easy to tell that that is what is going on it often just feels like she's failing to do one or the other um and again i think that that softens a little bit with age when you go back to the film and you can just sort of like see it for what it is um it's a little easier to pick those things apart and i have more thoughts about what is and isn't working in that regard but um yeah i feel like this is one thing that has occurred to me just today actually i was reading adrian martin talk about the film and um you know he, he talks about the film and he says ackerman's gamble here on many levels is to make a breezy bright liberating romantic comedy without the usual charm without the typical chemistry without those conventional crutches or easy ways of securing audience empathy and this is him responding to critics saying that, like, you know, the characters aren't charming, that it doesn't have the kind of like spark and lightness and, and you know, fun that these movies have. Um, he's saying that he's trying she's maybe trying to do something here to see if if you can if what what aspects of the romantic comedy are still engaging and fun and maybe have something intellectual to offer as you remove certain things from them. And I think one of the things that she's really clashing with actually is the kind of star system, like is the idea of stars. Um, in another interview she gave, she, she talks again about her idea of being like anti-idolatry, like being against idols. And though she doesn't specifically talk about it in relation to Couch in New York, she talks about it in relation to celebrities and like celebrity culture and stars. And, um, you know, for her, she really is against this. She doesn't, she doesn't believe in idols. She thinks it's a sort of major kind of moral and political problem, actually, in the contemporary world, um, is idolizing people and things. And so I think for her, it's like she takes these stars and then she writes kind of a, like these characters that barely exist. She kind of zaps the comedy and the charm out of it. Well, I mean, I don't know. I still find the, the, the film charming often, but it's just that she's sort of undermining this thing at the same time as maybe wanting audiences to like it at face value. And it just is a, a really weird mix. I don't know. I absolutely agree. It's charming though. Like I completely yeah. enjoy it. It just doesn't quite work. And it's interesting yeah. to see how, but it's, totally an enjoyable watch I mean and it's a great and it has those elements I mean so many romantic comedies are often really about the city and the, this is really fits that like it's about very much about New York and it captures a certain kind of New York really well as well as a certain kind of Paris but I think I, th I was thinking about why I, I really think with 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 uh, William Hurt it's pace and it's just like, he doesn't, he just, it's like this opposite rhythm, 
with Juliet Binoche, it might be, I mean, I think it might be some of the, it might be performance. It might be like thinking about typical uh, romantic comedies or think, thinking about typical screwball comedies, thinking about like how it would be if this was like Goldie Hawn or Bull Ogier or someone who could do crazy. You never think that Juliet Binoche may be wacky bohemian, but you never really think she's like crazy. And that would be interesting mm -hmm. if the crazy person were being where oh, what we didn't mention is then she takes over the all of the patients of the analyst uh, yeah, William Hurt <laughs> more 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 cutesy than crazy really yeah and she's I mean and she's very and she's like but if she if she were crazy this movie could be a classic <laughs> um, the uh, it's another thing you were talking uh, Kate about how like aspects of casting or anti chemistry like push against the form or whatever. And I think another important detail is that like Binoche mostly speaks English and William Hurt speaks a lot of French, very confusingly, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, to, to be fair, there is only one movie where William Hurt says film la gueule to a bunch of birds. So <laughs> it does give us that. It's true. Well, I mean, and he, I'm sure people know this, but he was, um, he was bilingual. So it's like, I think that was part of the interest in casting him. And I agree that his presence in the film is super strange. And I think the pacing thing does go some way towards explaining it. You know, a lot of critics have just sort of talked about it as him being too dour for this kind of role in the film that he comes off as very dour. I feel like he goes in and out. I feel like there are certain sequences where he is quite charming. And um, and again, we haven't described a, a, the specifics yet of a lot of what happens in the film. But um, as Miriam said, when the Binoche character arrives in New York, uh, Henry Harrison, as his as the William Hurt's character's name is, Henry Harrison is left for Paris, apparently without notifying any of his clients that he's yes. leaving. <laughs> and, um, and they all just show up at the door of his apartment and sort of barge in and just assume that the Binoche character is a replacement. And so she gets kind of like uh, caught up in taking over for his patients. Um, and it's all done in this very kind of light, funny style, right? It's you're meant to understand that it's harmless, that she's completely doing it out of like the goodness of her heart. And she wants to kind of help these people. And, and the like, cr the kind of crux of the film is that she just by sheer nature of being this kind of like, lively, joie de vivre, like wonderful woman cures everybody around her of their kind of gloomy New Yorkness, right? <laughs> she, the dog even who had been very depressed with Henry becomes this like lively, wonderful dog. And, um, and so anyway, so th there's interesting questions in there, I guess, too, about like ideas of kind of stereotype, like what this film is doing mm. with the sort of stereotypical Parisian woman kind of thing. And, or again, the kind of stereotypical romantic comedy female lead, because I do think the film is exceedingly aware of like traditions of romantic comedy at multiple levels. Like it's aware of traditions of romantic comedy dating back to, as Miriam said, the screwball comedy invoking kind of Lubitsch, um, maybe most specifically in the, his film shop around the corner because this film has a very similar uh, kind of structure. And I'll come back to that later because there's more I want to say about that. But so there's the Lubitsch angle, but I do feel like there is also a kind of like poking or criticizing a little bit of, of the kind of like more recent Hollywood iterations of it mm -hmm. in the sense of like the characters here really read as the kind of like, like it's so funny to think about an Ackerman film in the same context as like a David Wayne film. But to me, this really like jives with something like his film, they came together. I'm so glad like, you mentioned that. Yeah. Right. Like I, I feel like it's so hard to avoid. It's like here you have the very silly best friend characters who are basically just like empty figures who are only there to let the main characters talk about their feelings about the romantic 
relationship and like any number of other things. But but sorry, Simon, did I jump in? What were you going to say? Oh, no, it's just I, I've been the, the, the three words they came together have been screaming at me for the last five <laughs> minutes. So I'm really glad someone. But I was like, that's too silly. I'm not going to bring that up. <laughs> Like, yeah, even even the way it opens with a shot of the New York skyline. And yeah, exactly. Like, and we have like, a run to the airport, which is sort of subverted, but whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know, like, yeah. like clearly the, 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 the tropes were all there already. And it's it's mm-hmm. funny, it's what they came together was made like 13 years later or something. And it's yeah, like it's the true. tropes really haven't evolved. Well, and Sleepless in Seattle is what, 93? Is that what I that might so. be? I think yeah. so. That was a peak. I was just checking in. Green Card was 1990. So that would have mm, been the big, another, yeah. the big, like, you know, the big bilingual hit they were probably trying for. And this is definitely, but, you know, playing into the stereotypes and that sort of thing. Um, but, um, but yeah, it definitely plays into the like traditional, like the contemporary romantic comedy um, things, but it definitely gets into the his into the, like so the Lubitschian ones, but you're so right in it almost like um, um, almost avant-garde way. Like, I think one of my favorite moments is that a moment where Juliette Binoche is arriving and says that she's her only friend in the city is a dancer and the elevator operator, this really <laughs> wonderful character who could be from busby berkeley or david lynch or something yeah um says um oh i've always loved dancers and julia pinoche pauses and said oh why is that and he pauses for a long time so weird i don't know (laughs) that's interesting and i'm like that's the opposite of innuendo isn't it it's like really pushing things it's like innuendo like pushing the sex out of innuendo until it feels awkward and avant-garde yeah that was that was one of about uh i'd say i'm gonna say conservatively about a dozen moments during this movie where i'm like is it just me or is this movie really really strange (laughs) it's it's so for some reason her the closer she gets to the mainstream the weirder i find her movies to watch yeah and that that uncanny valley effect is in is very strong uh throughout parts of this movie in, in ways that i think are mostly like pretty productive and interesting um, I, I, since we were talking about best friends, I definitely need to give a shout out to uh, Stephanie Buttle, who plays Anne, yeah. which I think might actually be my favorite performance in the movie because every line of hers is hilarious. Well, I don't know. I've just heard that he's a major analyst. Oh, really? But how do you know? Believe it or not, I was in analysis. You? No way. Who could have guessed? Well, guess again. It's me. All of her outfits, yeah, this... too. She's great. <laughs> this is her friend. This is uh, the... This is Anne, movies. the other dancer. Yeah. Who, we, who we only learn are dancers because it is mentioned there is no dancing in this film. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately, it could have really, used some... Dan- maybe, that, maybe that was what they missed. Absolutely. A musical number at the end. But yeah, I think that, um, but I love some of the minor, the the patients, some of their, mm. like, I think the successful comedic bits have to do with those like neurotic bits or the indecision. And you see a lot of that in her other films and like films that are overtly comedies or not so overtly comedies like the, um, like a, um, I love the the character who who's talking about how expensive his deodorant is, but you never know if you don't stink. Like it's just this wonderful yeah. little little um, monologue. And then I think William Hurt's best moment comes when he's on a plane. I can't remember if he's going to Paris or from Paris at that point, but they ask him coffee or tea, and his just complete frozenness. <laughs> yes. of coffee or tea. 
coffee. No, wait. Uh, uh, yeah. Great. And like, so that's what I mean. Those sort of like neurotic, yeah. those like neurotic Weird bits. ruptures. Yeah. I love it. Yes. But they're also like are, are really fit with like the, the characters that will, would in, would be played by Chantal Ackerman some of her films like in yeah. um the film we'll we'll discuss in a bit the man with the suitcase or um I find there are very, lots of comedic bits in um and Jetu Ilel like the you know with the sugar and I mean you know these like food comedic bits and this sort of like these like this neurotic I think there there's so many beautiful comedic bits in it mm. and then um we can talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the man with the suitcase but um yeah i think um i mean gosh let's think for a moment think about this role think about this film if uh, chantelle ackerman played the binoche role i mean of course it'd be such a different i mean it would work would it, it would be a different film entirely <laughs> it would be the anti it would be something very very different so never mind. I take that back. I think that <laughs> yeah, I think you need you need the strangeness of the like romantic comedy stars being alienated for it to be what it is. Um, but no, I mean, I think there's I, there's so much here because I think it, maybe what you're kind of pointing towards, Miriam, talking about the um, the idea of like innuendo here being sort of emptied out or flipped over or like stretched out. And yeah, I, which I think is a really good way to put a lot of it. Or as Simon says, these strange ruptures. Is that I think a lot of what Ackerman is what her what the comedic register here is often has to do with language and like the way she's using language and the way it relates to certain ideas that you expect of kind of characters in Hollywood films and how she's so doing the opposite of what you would expect. And and so maybe as a way to get into this, I think when we were talking about Tutu Nui uh, on the podcast last month, I was saying how strange, like how unusual of an idea it is to make a film that is ostensibly all about love with Tutu Nui, where language is basically absent from that film. Like it's all physical, corporeal love. It's all kind of like emotion and affect and atmosphere. It's not about the kind of exchange of interiorities through spoken language. And I actually feel like that's a really important kind of intertext for Couch in New York, because I think Ackerman in general, as a sort of modernist artist, is really skeptical of language as a kind of like transparent medium that just you know, like is the vehicle for our thoughts as if our thoughts exist fully formed in our head and language just brings them out into the world. She doesn't believe in that model of subjectivity and interiority. So then how do you take someone like that and have them write a romantic comedy that exists, like the, the entire premise of that genre, at least since it exists from the 80s onward, has to do with this idea of like, you know, people who just aren't understood by everyone else around them and need that one special other person who understands their interior world, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I actually think Ackerman is sort of like taking that and just really subverting it in the language games that she plays in the film. And I really, I think it is genius. Like, for example, there's a bunch of stuff we could talk about here, but one of them, um, well, the first of it has to do with psychoanalysis. And we really need to talk more about yes. what psychoanalysis is doing in this film. Um, so we can come back to that. But one thing that happens here is this idea of kind of like echoing of language between characters, like the way Ackerman is trying to have characters speak in the way they need to speak in a Hollywood film but have them not really like contribute anything or be original. And so they're often like echoing other people. It's like the whole kind of crux of the film is, you know, uh, Juliette Binoche trying to kind of get the Henry Harrison character to open up. Right. Cause we haven't talked about this yet either, but uh, Henry Harrison, William Hurt, once he comes back from New York, he discovers that Binoche has been treating his patients and he goes in ready to confront her. Um, but then ends up kind of like, 
seeing her from behind, which is interesting because Ackerman does some interesting stuff in this film for, of uh, avoiding like the visual tropes of falling in love with someone's like physical appearance. They actually don't see each other very much until after their first meeting. But anyway, so he goes into the office, he ends up lying down on the couch. Um, and in a funny joke about psychoanalysis, neither of them can really talk in that meeting because Juliette Binoche has been told by the friend that the analyst can't really talk. She can only echo. And of course, Henry Harrison is an analyst. And so he only wants to echo. So the two of them can't say anything to each other. And then that kind of plays throughout the film, this idea of them as sort of empty echoes of the other one. Like the final scene in the film is um, when they arrive in Paris uh, Harrison's already there. Juliette Binoche comes back and they're talking to each other across a balcony, um, you know, as them speaking to each other and he, his like declaration of love and his revelation of who he is in this kind of Shakespearean mode is just him saying back to her words that she had said to him earlier as the other character is John Wire. So anyway, I, there's more to say about this, but I do think the language kind of stuff is key here and this play with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's very well said. And I think that that's, that gets into the, um, the essence of some of the peak screwball comedies is that echoing and that, but you're absolutely right. I didn't realize too, the, that the falling in love that you, without seeing the person. And then of course that's echoed at the end when they're not quite seeing each other and she's echoing him. That's yeah. Very well said. Um, yeah, it's too bad. I would have loved to see her work in this, you know, I feel like I feel like that there's more she could do in the genre. You know, like oh, there's yeah. more like she could have. Um, but yeah, again, I feel like too bad it didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> the um the the aspect about uh, something I was thinking about having only seen this film for the first time in the la first couple of times in the last little while was like I, I it made me think about what's changed potentially for audiences since 1996, like. There's a in the scene where they um where Binush and her friend Anne are talking about um Her Henry Harrison and of course the the poor uh, Stephanie Buttle is saddled with the, with these lines about oh he's a major analyst I hear he's a major analyst <laughs> or whatever and and she says like I was in analysis etc whereas now of course everyone's in analysis. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me wonder uh, how audiences will will feel about how it's sort of treated with novelty here. But I also think it might be interesting. I don't know. It, it would be interesting to see how contemporary audiences would react to sort of the, the fact that, you know, Hurt is presented as this um, uh, educated, accredited, major psychoanalyst figure who's got, you know, some repute, etc. And then Binoche is able to just sort of go in and fake it until she makes it right. Like she doesn't, she, she and her and her friend hilariously like open up their, open up a textbook or something and figure out what transference is and, and like guess at how it works, which of course results in some hilarious uh, dialogue about incest. Uh, some of the funniest stuff I think in any Ackerman film. I don't know. I think that's, that's all stuff that's sort of accidentally really interesting. And um, or I don't know how accidental it is actually, but I don't know. I feel like a lot of these, a lot of a lot of the the concerns that are unearthed as a result are kind of still poking around and maybe poking around in different ways than they were when when this film was conceived. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think very much at the time there was a lot of discussion from critics about how the film's kind of take on psychoanalysis was just stupid or silly or empty headed or whatever. And I feel like that's a complete 
misreading of this film. I mean, I feel like the film has genuinely interesting things to kind of say about psychoanalysis or like psychoanalysis plays a kind of key conceptual role in what the film is doing. Um, maybe at like a bunch of different levels, actually. But I think it's an important question. Like, A, is it mocking psychoanalysis? Because I think it's easy to, to look at the film and just on a surface level think, as you say, Simon, it's like, oh, well, anybody could just pretend to be an, an analyst because all it is is just saying, mm-hmm, and yes, and repeating the last word back to the patient. These are all ands. Uh, procedures for how to be an analyst. Um, anyway, and so the so that there is this kind of joke about analysis is just this sort of silly thing that anybody could do. But I also think as soon as you kind of step back from the film a little bit, it becomes quite clear that the that all of this material could only have been written by someone who is actually really engaged in that world. Like it is it is such a kind of like knowing burlesque of psychoanalysis, right? Like treating something that takes itself so seriously as something that is in fact really trivial and really kind of silly, but in this like kind of, I find it like, I find it an affectionate mocking, mm-hmm. mocking of, of psychoanalysis. I don't find it a kind of like cruel or harsh one. And again, as I've said, like Ackerman, I believe was in two analyses in her lifetime. Um, she like went to Lacan's lectures, that line that Anne quotes about love is something that you love is something you is giving something you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. That's a Lacan quote. Um, and it means something a bit more complicated than what it seems to mean on the surface. But anyway, so anyway, I don't know, Simon, did you find it a kind of like mocking take on analysis? I, I mean, I agree with you. It seems like it's kind of like, it's like a knowledgeable ribbing, it seemed to me. Um, that, that's kind of, I don't know, that's both, I think it both, like so many other things in this movie, kind of plays it broad and also seems to be couching something a little bit less broad, uh, sort yeah. of sort of under the surface that that is sort of there for you to excavate if you want. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's such a funny kind of like... Um riff with the analysis because it's like you know in the popular imagination i mean since analysis became a thing in america in the 40s really i mean freud hits america in like the 30s and you can see it in like hitchcock films and stuff but the but but a whole generation of analysts flee flee europe uh because of the there's like predominantly many jewish people working in analysis they have to flee flee Europe uh, during the Second World War. They end up in America and give rise to the kind of like various schools of psychoanalysis that take hold in the States. Um, anyway, so the, the, since that kind of period, it's been very associated in the popular imagination with this idea of like, you know, the analyst is the one who like sees the true you. Like they're the one who kind of, you know, sees the deepest depths of, of someone's subjectivity, of their interiority, who like knows them better than anyone else. And like, you know, I mean, sure, there's some truth to that, maybe in a certain kind of sense, but the joke that the film pulls out, and I think it strikes at something important about analysis is that, like, I don't know, that that maybe is no more true than, like, how anybody else knows you. It's just a different version of it. And so this is the kind of joke of the film is that, like, everything that Beatrice gets to know about Henry through the analysis is always reduced down to these really silly tropes about like his mother, like whether he loves his mother or not, or like, you know, whether he has a traumatism that can be overcome. It's like, it's all very reductive. There is no, the film really avoids any kind of like revelation that you might have about a kind of like, as if it was like the the romance comes out of one of them seeing deeply into the other one because they're an analyst. It's like, that's completely you know, sidesteps. Um, and then of course you have the sort of funnier slash grosser joke about like the whole film is actually just the fantasy of what it would be like to sleep with your psychoanalyst. <laughs> like what it would be like to date your psychoanalyst is a little weird. But, um, anyway. No, oh, because then it would be a relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's true. That's definitely within the, um, 
the the anal the, the you know the 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 Woody Allen comedies that were popular at the time and these sort of things and again like as I mentioned I feel like um, Ackerman was definitely um, uh, meant was really always working in this Jewish comedy tradition but I think isn't lumped in that the way someone like Woody Allen is in the way that um, to me I always think of Ackerman Cronenberg and Frederick Wiseman is all working in the Jewish comedy tradition, but I'm not Jewish, so I'm not an expert. So I'm not the person, not the one to really get into it, but it's something that they've all kind of talked about. Um, Cronenberg, um, I think I've talked to Cronenberg about, he's definitely talked about his, his, his comedy. And I think we've talked about whether it's a Jewish comedy tradition. And then um, Wiseman has like, you know, it's, the, the last thing you'd think of with Wiseman, but I really see it there. And I thought it was really interesting once when he was asked to choose a film to present at IFC, he chose the Marx Brothers. And um, with Ackerman, it's so clearly there. Like she made that film, um, what is it called? Food, Family, and Philosophy. Yeah, Histoire d'Amérique. Yeah. yeah, and it's like all about the, the, it's all about, it's like, you know, it's about, um, Jewish immigrants in New York, I think of a certain era that's a little bit unsaid, but there, uh, but that it's um it's a mixture of stories of trauma and like jokes, like solid corny jokes that are kind of like and this um and and I feel like that that's really the essence of a lot of, of her films. And so again, I say the problem with this film is it's too waspy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's true. I mean, it's also interesting because we haven't talked too much yet about the kind of position of the cities in the film. And um, I don't know, it's like uh, Marion Schmid, who's written a short book about Ackerman, I thought she made a kind of a very smart point about the film, which I feel like I sort of was thinking about a little bit. I hadn't put it, uh, I hadn't thought it out the way she had, and I think it's great, is... Um, her kind of noting the tension in the film that you have in both um, places. So both in uh, France and in New York, there's a kind of split that Ackerman sets up between the much more sort of like touristic, like touristy ideas of the city or the sort of like spectacular ideas of the city versus the places that she actually chooses to film on location. Um, so for example, in both Henry Harrison's apartment and um, Juliette Binoche's apartment, those were sets that were built in the Berlin studio. And there's all of these internet, you can see these photos of Ackerman that are great of her like standing in quote, quote unquote in front of the New York skyline, which is actually just the sort of painted backdrop uh, for Henry Harrison's view um, over the park out of his beautiful apartment. Wow. So there you have these kind of like anti-naturalist settings that that invoke things that we've seen in films like Night and Day, where there's this very strange kind of like painterly um, false quality to the to the space. There's that those places. Then in in both um, more in New York, I think you see. Although maybe you do see some. Um, touristy spots in Paris I can't remember but uh, in New York you see like Henry Harrison walking over the Brooklyn Bridge the film opens with the shot of the New York skyline as Simon says the park um, which is is quite out of character for Ackerman right like as we talked about with News from Home she her interest in New York is very much not the kind of like romantic picture of New York it's it's something very different it's much more the sort of like yeah run down kind of different uh, lived in experience of New York Anyways, you have the touristy shots. And then next to that, Ackerman very pointedly films um, in kind of like 
multi-ethnic, multicultural, uh, non-gentrified, non-commodified neighborhoods, and you have like long shots mm-hmm. of characters in these spaces. So I think both times it's Henry. So you see him arriving in Belleville in um, Paris, where the Binoche character is supposed to live. And it's like a, a bustling kind of community uh, filled with immigrants, filled with, you know, people from all over the world. It's like a very different kind of vibe than maybe we've even seen in Ackerman's depictions of Paris up to this point in her cinema. And same with in New York, you have these beautiful, like long takes through, um, Brooklyn in 1995 and it's like you know dozens of people sitting on their stoops people of all classes of different backgrounds I mean it's like it's a really clear kind of like contrast that she sets up and Schmidt makes the argument that this is sort of like Ackerman's kind of subtle critique about you know gentrification and like certain ideas of the city and I find that convincing although again I think it's the kind of thing where Ackerman's maybe trying to have it both ways Mm -hmm. it's like trying to both give something that the quote-unquote audience wants while also providing critique but then it doesn't really work fully either way because of it you know I yeah. I, I'm really glad you mentioned specifically the shot of uh, of Hurt walking walking down. He, he, it's it's I, I didn't time it, but I want to say it's at least like a 45 second shot of him just walking. And the only purpose of the scene narratively, because of course the scene the scene must have a narrative purpose because it's a rom com. There isn't room for additional stuff. The only narrative purpose of the scene is that he's making a phone call. <laughs> the whole thing is to walk to a payphone, <laughs> which I kind of love that. Like, I love that she found the time in the edit for uh, for something that breathes that much. Yeah, I think I think when you talk, there's also there's something so interesting about the sets of those two apartments in that obviously the um, the William Hurt character is sort of obsessive compulsive, very neat. Everything is just um gorgeous and then um uh the Juliet Binoche is like you know living in a in a in a garret to the extreme and that's brought to you know and I feel like we know that Ackerman thrives in mess you know like in the comedy of mess and and so it's definitely um kind of contrasted here but we don't stay long in Paris it's so much of it is in the William mm-hmm. Hurt place so we don't really we don't we don't get that mess that we do in some of the other films we're about to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that like the movie sets up some expectations that don't like, you know, at first you think, oh, this will be a movie about these two people who get to know each other through their stuff and their environments, which is kind of an interesting idea. But that doesn't last very long. And then it seems like, oh, maybe this will be a cultural exchange like William Hurt goes to France and will follow his experience, his, his, his experience in France and Binoche in New York, but then it doesn't do that either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I, it's I, this film is interesting because it, I feel like at the same time as it's undermining a lot of things about um, maybe the more contemporary ideas of sort of romantic comedy, I think in another kind of sense, it is very much celebrating what you what you want to ascribe more to the kind of screwball comedies, the kind of earlier comedies. It's whereas like, I do think that Ackerman is genuine to a certain extent in her Hmm. And her interest in this mode or genre of film having to do with the idea of it being kind of like, uh, how to say this, like opening onto a kind of fairy tale space or opening onto a really kind of charmed, um, kind of lovely space. You know, it's like Ackerman's films, her whole over like moves back and forth between these kind of like sort of harsh, oppressive, um, kind of difficult spaces and these like really light, airy, wonderful kind of romantic spaces. And I think Ackerman is drawn to the comedy for the fact that she can kind of create this sort of like quote unquote fairy tale type space. And that like, I don't think it's entirely ironic or entirely mocking is sort of what I mean to say about this. And I think the way that you can see that there is some kind of serious 
interest from her in terms of like what comedy can do here um, has to do both with questions of like class and maybe that's already implied in the discussion of sort of gentrification. But, you know, comedy historically has been like the space where where class and different kind of divisive lines in society are able to be sort of jumbled or overcome or turned upside down, even only temporarily. Right. And so here you have people of different classes coming together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's that part of it. But then there's also the kind of like what I think is fascinating that she takes from from Lubitsch from Shop Around the Corner and maybe from certain other screwball comedies is like an actual, I think, investigation of, I don't know, some ideas about sort of love in the contemporary moment, like this sort of modernist idea of love, the problem of love in the modern moment of um, how to say it, like that the, this nature of the story here with Hurt uh, falling in love with Binoche without Binoche knowing who he is and vice versa. I mean, he can see her, but she can't see him, et cetera, et cetera. It's that, I don't know, this question of like love, that you can only experience love if you, sorry, how to say this, that you can only trust love if the other person falls in love with you without you really being involved. I'm not explaining this very well, but it's like that you have to take a vacation from your life. You have to step outside of your ordinary life. You have to shed everything about you that makes you quote unquote you in order for somebody to fall in love with you, right? This is this game of like, who is the real person here right and it's like the fantasy of love is that it always guarantees authenticity it always like true love guarantees that someone has seen the real inner you but here it's like that's undermined a little bit by the idea that you have to give up everything you are in order to be seen by someone else uh anyway now i'm like rambling but i just find this fascinating i do think ackerman's thinking about these things genuinely here but it's also true that like the binoche character doesn't change she's not crazy and she doesn't change so she's not like really a mark for change and she's like Mm. the so we we don't we don't we don't get any of that kind of growth or um like i think about um you know i was comparing her her lack of craziness to um i love the film bringing up baby classic Mm -hmm. and i think hawks um always had his own criticisms of that film was that everyone was crazy you needed at least someone to be sane (laughs) (laughs) and um and uh and this film um uh you know the William Hurt is clearly the very somber character and so you need uh that kind of you need something something different but yeah I think that there's I would love to hear you um on a whole podcast on romantic comedies Kate (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'd have to think about that more it's not really my main area of expertise i watched sleepless in seattle when i was sick some <laughs> time ago for the first time ever i'd never seen it and i was like what is this why do people talk about this movie and i found it unbearable I was oh like, my god like, okay let's do a podcast because i have a thing i my th- i hate that film and i really sincerely believe that film destroyed romantic com- comedy agreed 100 and part because like they're never in the same frame at the same time. It's completely makes this idea of romance, not about like the sort of crackling energy and sexuality, like changed into banter and word. And it just becomes this like idealized romanticism and rips off all of these things from classic movies in the worst way. But then like, it's just, they're never in the same frame. I, 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 I'm the enemy of that film. So join the team. (laughs) Well, good. Okay. I'm not too alone then. I mean, I, I, yeah, you're right. I think this question of like, I don't know, just this film's relation to romantic comedy versus screwball comedy is an interesting one. And I do think that there's maybe just things here that Ackerman wanted to do that just don't quite come across. Like for example, the question of like whether the Juliette Binoche character changes, 
she doesn't really. I mean, I don't, there isn't much in the way of change here, but I do think watching it again now, I caught this thing that is set up very quickly at the beginning of the film, which is that one of her ex-boyfriend characters, who's always kind of all of these men who love her are chasing her around Paris and getting into her apartment. One of them shows up and tells the uh, Henry Harrison character that like, you know, she's this incredible, beautiful woman, whatever, but that she she loves no one, you know, she doesn't love anyone. And then, so I think the idea, like, I think there is a sort of idea in play in the film that it's supposed to be this kind of dramatic change that she falls in love with the Henry Harrison character, that this is something new, but the film doesn't really do any of the kind of framing work to set that up. And again, it's like, you're left in this weird position of wondering whether that's Ackerman failing to do something or whether that's the film kind of trying to undermine these tropes of like, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's a weird mix. Yeah. The, uh, the, the weirdness also, I don't know, it manifests in all kinds of places, but it, it, it comes out uh, in the, in some of the supporting characters and how they play into the plot as well. And when I say supporting characters, I mean, really supporting like, Oh, you know, uh, William Hurt's fiance who shows up really for one scene. Yeah. One, it, like the care, a character who really like in any other film would be like a major source of conflict that he's engaged to be married. And she literally shows up, gives a monologue, assumes Binoche is his mistress and leaves the film. <laughs> exactly. Takes the dog <laughs> so that Henry Harrison and her can jump into the pond after the dog. But that's it. That's the only role she serves. <laughs> yeah. I love that actually. I absolutely love that. The, uh, another thing that I, 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 I really only appreciated this on rewatch. It's um, so Paul Guilfoyle shows up here in what I can only call what would have been 10 years later, the Dane cook role of just oh, like, God. I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. It's the only way I can think of it. You know, the cad who just, you know, tell who's just always, you know, whatever that that's very typical rom-com character. But um, William Hurt goes to him for advice and to, and I guess to stay with him for a while. And then from then on for a while, he starts wearing, uh, his buddy's clothes. Uh, so he's mo- he's changed from his normal nice duds to wearing these like oversized, these horrible striped t-shirts, like oversized t-shirts, which he wears for like an hour of this movie. <laughs> and for some reason, every time he showed up in one in a new one of these t-shirts, I lost my mind. <laughs> I don't you, know why. You called it a, a podcast. It's uniform? absolutely podcaster chic. No question. <laughs> And it's still like, was anyone? Were, I wasn't around in in New York in 1996. Is this how is this how men dressed? What is happening? Well, it's kind of a funny joke, right? That like this idea that the Harrison character goes from being like these absolutely extreme signifiers of like the most upper upper class, like elitist kind of position one can be in, right? This like yeah. incredibly wealthy analyst. He has this incredibly wealthy fiance, and that who follows all of these rules of what it is to be rich in New York. And we haven't mentioned it here, but there is a subplot with uh, Harrison who like has a mother she doesn't show up in the film but that she's referenced a lot in these Mm -hmm. kind of appointments with Binoche that Harrison has sort of fallen out of touch or become estranged from his mother a little bit because she is she is not from wealthy um background right and so anyway so there's a lot of play here with class so I do find it kind of funny that as soon as he like gets out of those suits he has to get into the worst clothing possible (laughs) it's like there's no space in the middle it's either most beautiful suit ever made or the ugliest t-shirt ever made. And I cannot, I also can't, like, I need to also emphasize just how weird William Hurt's walking is in this movie. I don't know if it's, if it's just how he always, but he's got this that's weird always. stride that's his, where he, that's his, that's his he just thing. swing, he has one, he's got his a coat in one arm and the other, the other one is swinging around like 160 degrees. I don't know why. It's just baffling. It's like, 
pensive. He's a pensive walker. And that's why I think it doesn't work. He doesn't like have a, but yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about, um, the way, um, Ackerman walks in the man with a suitcase and how absolutely opposite those walks are. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Yeah, do we? I mean, maybe we can. We should start to wrap up the discussion here. But I'm interested. Do people really think that this film kind of like falls at the bottom of the pile of Ackerman films that they've seen, or like where do you find that this this film sits? I kind of feel like this is. Forgive me for this comparison, Kate, but I kind of feel like this is Chantal Ackerman's Dune. Like, <laughs> I, th- I think. That's so interesting. I mean, you know, the the only Dune I care to talk about, uh, the, the the Lynch one, obviously. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a weird, you know, it's it's a production outlier. What you're able to get out of it, I think, is will vary wildly uh, depending on on viewer. But I also like to think of this movie. Uh, it's, it's funny that Miriam, you kind of pitched a podcast this week because I was thinking another great concept for a podcast would be to only talk about first English or American films. Because that is a, is a really, yeah, you, know, you yeah. can, you know, that's, that's a, an, an interesting bunch. You know, you could go, you could talk about, you know, my blueberry nights to serpent's egg to this, to uh, the vanishing to all kinds of stuff. I mean, all sorts of fiascos and weirdnesses. I would say that this film, oh, that's a great idea. I would say that this film is somewhere like if I were comparing it to Hawks, and I think Ch- Ackerman is like Hawks and that you can't really pick a, the best and the worst. It's just the whole thing. It's They're all kind of the same or part of the same project, even though Ackermans are so different. But if this would be her like man's, it's kind of her man's favorite sport, but it's also kind of her red line 7,000. <laughs> so it's somewhere like in between that of like a charming, awkward contemporary versus like, just weird yeah i mean i again i'm terrible at this i feel like i can't because every time i feel like i want to say that there's a movie of ackerman's that i like less or i don't love or whatever i always kind of stumble a little bit i'm like no but there's still so many good things to say about it that i have a hard time ranking things low because i do think that this movie is fascinating but one thing i would say about it is that i think despite the perception that you could have that this film would be a good place to like introduce somebody to Ackerman or to like bring somebody into Ackerman. I actually feel like that it would no. really backfire. I feel like this is not a good place no. to start with Ackerman. <laughs> we all agree there. Also <laughs> shout out to the dog who is both very cute and a very good actor. <laughs> it's a great dog. It's very a good great dog. dog. And then another bring it baby shout out when they're looking for the dog in the forest. Yeah. Like I love George, Georgie from uh, bringing up baby. Yeah. I love that dog. <laughs> this dog is great. And this dog has two names. Mm, yes what are the names romeo and edgar edgar is, is the edgar horrible is his name depressive yeah. name yeah his depressive name and then she renames him romeo which nobody ever comments on like even henry is not like oh he has a new name i'm just like sure great romeo why not <laughs> Uh, this is your friendly neighborhood editor and host popping in to tell you that this next talk spot is about the seven-minute short Le Jour Où, uh, a fact we fail to mention at any point while talking about it. Uh, anyway, this is me telling you. It's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. After Coach in New York, Ackerman was so disenchanted with 
filmmaking that she seriously considered stopping being a filmmaker. She, um, you know, she later says like, of course I, I was able to feel my way back to it and I came back to it, but I was quite sure for a while there that I was not going to make another film. Uh, and she mostly transitioned into writing anyway. So this film becomes her, the first thing she makes back. It's two years later. So we're in 1997 when she makes this short, yeah, I mean, I can describe what it is, uh, unless unless anybody else wants to give their sense of what the uh, what the film is like. Um, and then, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the film has sort of comic aspects to it, but obviously, it's like a very different register of mm-hmm. comic, if if we even really want to call it that, <laughs> than Couch in New York. To describe it in sort of a a, a, a simple technical way, it's just sort of a, a three hundred and sixty pan as we as we got in the chambre of uh, here Ackerman sitting in a room. And uh, and reciting a text, uh, the complete text of which you can find in the uh, in the uh, Roberts Handbook, uh, the Roberts Hogg uh, Ackerman Handbook, uh, and it's this heady text about uh, waking up, having a bad day, and uh, feeling like uh, and sort of trying to assess the, uh, the 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 future of cinema. This is a text she repeats, I think, two and a half times before the film just ends. I didn't quite know what to make of this, but I sort of got the got the sense just from the timing uh, of when it came out and just the fact that it's so like, so it could not be more different from Couch in New York, really, in terms of like every possible, uh, every possible measure. And it does feel you did. I don't think I needed Kate to tell me that she didn't feel great about making movies at the time. Kate, did you hear this described as comedic? Because I found it. I found it interesting to describe this film as comedic. Yeah, I mean, well, maybe not comedic, but I feel like I've heard it described as sort of like Ackerman having fun with the kind of like format she sets out here. Mm. It is a strange mix because on the one hand, I think Ackerman is very clearly, as Simon said, invoking her earlier cinema, which is much more kind of minimalist and structured and uh, formalist. But compared to that earlier material, you have here this kind of like very funny voiceover that's part of it, right? So if there is any sort of comic elements to it or kind of funny elements to it it is very much in the voiceover and like I won't read the whole thing but I'll just read the beginning part of it so people can hear and maybe later I'll read the last little paragraph but um she says the day I decided to think about the future of cinema I got out of the wrong side of the bed I poured grapefruit juice onto an upside down glass I let my bath overflow I knocked over my coffee with a sweeping gesture I put my t-shirt on inside out I didn't pick up my change at the tobacconist on and on and on and it goes on that way for a while before kind of switching and she loops back and forth to this question of like the the future of cinema the future of cinema and having decided to think about it on this day and everything going wrong and so there are kind of comic elements in that and and maybe it's sort of worth talking about what that does to the kind of like formalist quality of the film um i don't know like do people have thoughts about that they just you guys still feel like it is a kind of heavy film well i i personally i i found it a little heavy but also i thought it 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 connected kind of neatly to um I think a recurring theme in Ackerman's films, especially the ones that involve Ackerman or Ackerman sort of avatars potentially sitting in rooms. Um, I thought it was a sort of an interesting addition to the canon of, of films of hers that, that consider like productive time versus not productive time, like times for times to do certain things or times to not do things. And I, 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 this, this prescription of on a day when you have, woken up on the wrong side of the bed, do none of these things because none of them will go well. Uh, I don't know. This sort of like, it's kind of a, a, a recur, a returning philosophy of hers that there's, there's times to do things and there's like windows of opportunity and then windows of non-opportunity. And I don't know what, what that all means. Um, so I, I find that connects to, um, uh, tabernacle. 
it connects to especially some of the more comic shorts we've discussed before i find it very not comedic more i mean i can usually find the comedy in a lot of her things and i don't really see the comedy in this but i love it as as an idea of like a postscript from couch in new york of like mm. this is her like you know because she says that it's it's obviously her about her frustrations with cinema but then at the end she says then you're in a dark room and you find that you know, that inspiration or I'm misquoting, but something that we all know when we get tired of mainstream cinema and like, especially um, those who are making it and those who are working in it. Mm. Um, so I love that as like a postscript, but yes, I, I find, I think, I think to call this comedic would be a stretch to me. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I, I, I like that framing. I, I kind of took it as like a recentering mantra almost in a strange way, which is, which of course it, it helps that she repeats it several times. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting that you frame it as a mantra, Simon, because I feel like it occurred to me, I mean, we all maybe had a bit of a strange experience with this film because we had to read the translation like in a book separately from the film. Like it wasn't um, subtitle yeah. onto the image. So uh, one thing that occurred to me, like after I'd watched it and read the, the word separately is that you do get this ending that Miriam mentions and I'll read it because it's a really lovely bit of writing from Ackerman. Um, so after going through the kind of getting up on the wrong side of the bed, et cetera, et cetera stuff, she moved towards saying at the end, if by chance you wake up and think without thinking about something that unbeknown to you has crossed your wide awake mind, which forgets that it shouldn't be thinking, you find this quite delightful and say to yourself that it may well be that tomorrow or the day after tomorrow or someday soon, you'll see something in the dark and you'll know that this is a beautiful piece of cinema. And so there's a sense in which like you hear that and you want to kind of end on this idea of it being a sort of romantic, like a reinfatuation with cinema. But the film itself kind of ultimately undoes this a little bit in the way that like Simon, you kind of capture there by calling it a mantra, because it's like, as she starts again, it, it undoes the kind of like the, the move towards a sort of centering or a calmness or a, a refining of inspiration at the end, because then she's back at the beginning in this position of having decided to think about something and that creating all of these problems. And every time as she reads, every time she reads through this, um, set of text, she goes a little faster, right? So the camera uh, continues its kind of like inexorable pace. The pace of the camera doesn't change, but her voice speeds up as she goes, kind of implying this sort of mania. It's like the sense of like her not being able to get to this calmness with cinema that she wants. And so she has to go back and repeat it again and repeat it again. And it just isn't, it's always a little further out of reach. So it's like the film is both comforting and beautiful, but also like really unnerving and kind of upsetting mm -hmm. <laughs> too. <laughs> The other thing I went to say about the film too was that uh, I think it's interesting that the film, her talking about this idea of the future of cinema, I think one maybe kind of intertext for that is that 1995 was the centenary, it's the centenary of cinema, right? That cinema, you know, is quote unquote invented in, 19, in 1895. And so there was a lot of discussion in 1995 around the state of cinema, around what cinema is. Um, it, will it survive for, you know, another hundred years? Obviously it's not going to, but um, <laughs> what, what is kind of cinephilia in this current moment? And there were, you know, like people like Susan Sontag writing about the death of cinephilia in 1995, the end of a certain way of watching movies of relating to films, right? With the rise of like, VHS and uh, film on television and, and just on the horizon, the idea of digital cinema coming in. And so I don't know, I think it's also interesting that in this film where Ackerman's saying like, I'm deciding to think about the future of cinema, that she is enacting in the kind of formal choices of the film, this like backwards looking uh, tendency, right? Like look, look, looking towards the history of film, both the history of her own filmmaking with the, the reference to Le Chambre, but also as she says, the film is meant as an homage to Godard. So again, there's this kind of backwards looking 
ideas. It's like the future of cinema. I think for a lot of cinephiles, a lot of people ends up sort of really always doubling back onto the history of cinema. So it's an interesting, I don't know. I just think the film is doing a lot of interesting things. Uh, well, it's it's tough for your ears not to perk up when she, when you realize she's talking about, or or when you look at the uh, look at the text and realize, oh, she's actually talking about cinema, something she hasn't done in any exactly. in any of the other films we've discussed that yeah, I can think of, and how she finds her way back to it. She often talks about her frustrations with working or just living, yeah. you know, like it's sort of like a grind, <laughs> but to find we definitely don't get her very often talking about how she finds her way back to it like time and again mm -hmm. in those frustrations. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. We could probably move on to Man with a Suitcase. Yeah. So we're going to sort of backtrack here and uh, take a look at a previous example of uh, Ackerman once again working in, I think we can call this a pretty overtly comic mode here, Kate. Absolutely. I, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> this is uh, a, a, a very pretty wacky little movie, to be honest. I say I say little. It runs a, a nice a nice uh, more people. I've said this before, but more people need to make sixty minute films. It's a oh, great yeah. it's a great length. Let's get let's get more uh, let's get more more people working in this format. So uh, this was made for television. Uh, I don't know anything about the other films made for this series. Uh, I always feel like I should look that up, and I never do. Uh, but this one uh, is set entirely. Do we know if 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 this was a place Ackerman lived in again, or is this just another place? Uh, so, okay, so this apartment was the apartment where they filmed the ending of meetings with Anna, ah. which is fascinating. And there's things to be said about about that. The series was called, it was actually called Television de Chambre. So that was the the name of the series that commissioned Ackerman to make this film in 1981. Uh, and she was commissioned by the Institut National de l'Audiovisuel. Um, and then, yeah, worked with this writer to write the film. Um, but sorry, Simon, what were you going to say? Uh, well, so the anyway, the, the it's really it's a pretty simple premise. I mean, essentially, uh, Ackerman's character, uh, yeah, has 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 loaned out her apartment for a couple of months and returns home to find an interloper. Um, who is, as far as we can tell, a perfectly nice man <laughs> who does the dishes and offers food. <laughs> and uh, But for one reason or another, and honestly, anyone who's lived with people for any length of time uh, will, uh, will probably understand some of what uh, and, and have sympathy for Ackerman here. Um, you know, she's she also just, writing. She's writing on a deadline. That's, so that's sort true. Of like the, got the the shining element. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, she's she certainly she she threatens to go full Nicholson if if this situation goes too much longer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the uh, it's really just an escalating series of little comic vignettes about her frustration with this aggressively ordinary but very tall man. That's what I was going to say. You, you you didn't mention the key part is that she is very short and he is very tall. And that, yes. my friend, is comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Few, so few understand this. <laughs> yep. The uh, the Laurel and Hardy of the avant-garde cinema, modernist cinema world, Ackerman and this guy. <laughs> Um, wait, so so Miriam, had you seen this film before this? I had seen it, but actually, like fairly recently, like this was one of the 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 last one of the later film one of the last films that um I I've seen uh of hers. I think I saw it d during the pandemic at some point, um, and I was so impressed with it. And I really think it's really her like most successful overt comedy. I mean, I guess there are a few. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just, I love her performance in it and it really 
brought home some of what I was talking about as far as like the domestic comedy and, um, and, and, you know, just like, it's, it's like a, and, and she does a lot of the things with, with the low angles that she does in Jean Dealman, but in a really different for, for a very different effect. And I just think her, her performance in particular is, um, just like, um, you know, she's like a chaplain. She's just like, a uh, she's like a, a, a silent, a comedian, a comedian, like the, in the way that she's performing. And there's just like, you know, she has so many funny teeth brushing scenes in this and it kept <laughs> invoking something that like, I was like, is there a silent film tooth brushing scene? I, I like, I feel teeth brushing scene. I feel like I was trying, I was trying to find if there was a chaplain one and I saw the, the soap sandwich, but I didn't see a tooth brushing scene, but I, I almost feel like it, it reminds me of something, but, um, yeah. And so she just like, she's, yeah, she, she, she's trying to carve her own space with a roommate, which, you know, goes through things that involve moving furniture or uh, throwing his things out the window. And it's, um, I just find it completely successful on almost like silent film level. I was kind of surprised actually to, to read that there was only a one credited writer for this because to me it is so of a piece with like Ackerman's broader concerns and her over and the material she writes that I'm quite surprised she's not credited as a writer on it. And I'm sure it's not that simple. Like I'm sure it's, it was a mixture of both people contributing to this. But, um, but I do like one thing we haven't maybe talked about so much yet is the fact that it's quite clear from very early on in the film that Ackerman, that the film wants you to understand that Ackerman's character is the one who is acting crazily <laughs> like that Ackerman is Ackerman's character is the one who's acting very strangely so she arrives back at the flat um and actually we should say the beginning of the film is her arriving uh in this apartment and she's been away for a while and she sort of goes around and kind of like you know moves things around opens things she throws a towel away that you think belonged to the, her house guest she throws it out the window and she's taking food out of the fridge and it's like her kind of like rehabilitate like she gets back into her home into this habilitation space and it's interesting because it chimes with the beginning of couch in new york where you have both characters learning about the other one from the space that mm -hmm. they live in it's like mm -hmm. this thing that ackerman does often where she kind of conflates like rooms and spaces with kind of interiority with the idea of like selfhood is like the space becomes the external kind of metonym for that. But anyway, um, so she comes into the space, she leaves briefly, she comes back, this guy's there. And then he says, you know, I'm here. And she says, I see. And like, without breaking, she just, she starts storming around the apartment, kind of pulling all the furniture she had set up so that she could type in the living room. She's like, pulls all of this stuff away. She's banging it down the hallways to get it back into her bedroom. She throws everything into her room in this really like exaggerated way because she's going to sort of retreat into her room. She will not leave from the room if she can avoid it. And the film has these um, intertitles that break up the days and tell you how much time is passing. It's like day one, day two. And there's always a little kind of funny tagline about what's happening each day. And and uh, I think by like the second or the third day, she starts to keep track of the man's schedule so that she can try to avoid him at all costs. Like she's going to reorient her entire life so yes. that she can never cross him in the hallway and stuff, which is incredible. And as with some, as someone who had a terrible roommate once, I, I found this a little too real. Was <laughs> it triggering, Kate? Well, but uh, but I, I, I that's the part that that I think most people will find relatable and possibly indeed triggering. But then as the movie goes on. Like it really begins. It begins to seem like her campaign against this man is, in fact, the project of her life. Yes, exactly. Which is yeah. pretty funny. Again, it's good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> as a distraction from her writing that she needs to do. But then it becomes quite like the the comedy moves to a very um, 
deftly and and surprisingly to this sort of isolated true loneliness at the end that I find really moving as well. I, I mm-hmm. love it. This is a this is one of the ones I feel like should be. I wish it were more seen and more available. Yeah, exactly. I wish it were better known too. I mean, I think it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful film and it really is a kind of like incredible mix of a lot of the things she does. And it's also a film that requires, I think like it pays, it pays dividends from close watching and like close attention um, because she's doing a lot of little subtle things here that are not so obvious. Like the thing with the um, apartment is one of them. It's like, again, the film is very uh, aware of what it's doing with this question of like presenting Ackerman as a character and presenting her as like the, the character of filmmaker Ackerman, um, right? By, by tying it to the end of Meetings with Anna, where in Meetings with Anna, you have the lead character there is another kind of like autobiographical play on the figure of Ackerman, the filmmaker. Here you have another version of that, but they're kind of opposite, right? It's like in... Um, I forget who talks about this. Maybe Marion Schmidt again makes this point that like in meetings with Anna, the woman is very like elegant and like reserved and withdrawn. And here, I mean, she's certainly withdrawn, but here she's like very kind of clumsy and awkward and goofy and funny. And she, every, anytime she walks around in that uh, apartment wearing her like high heels and like clomping from leg to leg on the high heels, it just makes me laugh (laughs) very hard. Um, But again, it's all about kind of like undermining sort of this like idea that we would know who Ackerman the filmmaker is through her kind of like performances in these films, right? It's all about sort of undermining this. And like the question about her control, her kind of like lack of control, like being totally out of control, being totally unable to write um, because this guy is there. And and while simultaneously signaling to the audience that like this guy is fine, like he's really not that bad. It's like, but she just is completely out of control from like the first second. And I don't know, there's more things to say about this, but that's just, some <laughs> yeah you, you you don't include a scene of, of a man doing dishes unless you want us to feel he is an he is an at least semi-responsible roommate <laughs> it's sort of the one thing you've got to do it's true and it's like but this is the thing i think that is so maybe kind of chilling about the film at a certain point is you realize it's like just how invaded she this character feels mm-hmm. right away right this is this idea that like this the home the kind of room is her um, castle. And and this brings up a kind of connection that I think Adam Roberts makes in the book from uh, the program that they they curated of Ackerman's work. Um, anyway, which is to link it to Kafka's last short story, The Burrow, which I actually thought was a genius connection. I had mm. not thought of that before. Do you guys know this story? No, the I haven't read it. No? So yeah, Kafka wrote it. Um, apparently he did finish it. Like he did write an ending, but the version with an ending was burned by his then lover who burned a number of his final works. And so there's only a kind of unfinished version of it. But the story, it's been a while since I've read it. So this probably won't be the best summary, but the story revolves around, it's like all done in the first person from the vantage of this burrowing animal that's never fully described. It's not like specified. It's just a burrowing animal with like paws and a forehead and it lives underground. And um his whole like project or their whole project there. I don't even think there's a gender. Um, the animal's whole project is to build this like perfect burrow, this perfect kind of space that cannot be infiltrated by anything else. Like the idea is, is that the hope that this animal lives for is to eradicate all threat and not just like actual threat. Like he has this incredibly complex underground thing he's built to um, eradicate like other animals getting into it. It's not just to eradicate actual threat. It's to eradicate like the thought of threat, like the anxiety. This is what he's trying to eradicate. But of course, as the story goes on, it becomes clear that the more the animal tries to do this, the more 
his wish to eradicate anxiety is the cause of his anxiety. <laughs> so it's like he becomes his own kind of like worst enemy in this. And the reason that I think it maybe most obviously links up to what Ackerman is doing here is that um, despite the fact that he succeeds in building this burrow, there is a sound that starts to appear halfway through that gets into the burrow, which like absolutely sends him off <laughs> the deep end from what I remember. And it echoes so interestingly with the way sound works in this film where so much of the comedy revolves around sounds getting into Ackerman's room, right? Like she tries to retreat into he her even smaller castle of the bedroom, but even there she's not safe because the sounds of him brushing his teeth and shaving, like get into the room and bother her writing schedule. And yeah. Anyway, so the theme of paranoia maybe is mm -hmm. uh, is a like a possible thing we could talk about here. <laughs> Once again, I'm amazed, Kate. You you've brought in Franz Kafka, and like literally, my my next note is just like a Ackerman walking funny, carrying a large breakfast. To me, that is. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Those are both really important. But I want to, I want to, I want to give a little, a little boost for the Ackerman character. I know she's acting irrationally, but at the same time, I find it a little bit relatable. Oh, it's it, extremely relatable. Oh, totally, totally, yeah. But it's especially the idea of that she's. It's not just a roommate. It's that like she's come home, and her home is no yeah. longer her home. And this idea of not yes. being able to turn you know you can't go home again like this mm -hmm. being able to return home to something wanting everything to be the same and it's not that real sadness yeah there's something uh i think very relatable and and that it's not just a roommate but that you know it's yes, she's yeah. it's, it's the return home that's no longer her space yeah, absolutely. And I, I someone, um, maybe Schmidt again, describes, I thought this was quite right, like describes that part of the uncanniness of the whole scenario is the fact that he seems eminently at ease in the flat, right? Mm -hmm. Like he seems very much at home. And she, even though it's her home, is now feels like an intruder in the space, oh, exactly. right? And, and she's so good at kind exactly. of um, setting that up, like choreographing shots to emphasize this. Like there's a, an incredible sequence where she comes out of her room at one point and he's in the hallway and they have to like get by each other in the hallway and it's like you the feeling of invasion is like palpable it's like she is so not wanting to be like touched by him and there's a sequence of the um early on when she's still willing to like go outside and she tries to go outside and have breakfast and he he joins her and comes to the table and very nicely is like wanting to kind of have small talk with her while they eat breakfast and she is doing everything she can to like turn her body away <laughs> from him at the table and like to really physically not engage with him and like shut him out and it's I don't know. I mean, it's fascinating. And I, I've seen people, um, I mean, I feel like I'm not sure I entirely buy this kind of angle of readings this, of this film, but I've seen people kind of mention the fact that like the idea of the heterosexual couple is almost like a phobic object in this film. It's like mm -hmm. the idea that like, because the man and the woman are in the house together, that this is like a coupling and it's like th this like strong resistance to this. And then the idea of her um, kind of having the funny reaction when he goes out and may or may not sleep with a friend, a female friend of hers and like her having a weird kind of reaction to this. And mm. Anyway, so there, there's, again, I'm not sure entirely. I think that's like I think a, it's a super pressing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm not really sure that's that present in this film because he's so, he's so like benign, yeah. this character. Like it's, it's sort of like it could be anyone. Although I have to admit it does. I do think there's a gendered aspect of it. Because oh, for I do sure. feel like if it was a female character, it wouldn't read in the same way. If there are any letterboxed reviews for this, I'm sure they're all like, I too can't do anything when there's a man in my house or whatever. <laughs> I was going to say too, the idea about like the relatability. Oh yeah. This, this element of like, of course, like, oh, it's totally relatable. This is why it's so uncomfortable to watch because you're like, oh my God, I can feel myself doing these things too. It's just, uh, 
but like I think again it's maybe I forget who says this some maybe his name is Dick Tomasic or something has written about this film um he is talking about the idea that like what is actually really kind of disturbing watching the film is how the entire like disruptive uh kind of events of the film all of the energy in the film all goes into her not like her avoiding the the thing that would resolve the situation right <laughs> like she could just talk to the guy like she could just say I want you to leave but the fact that like that cannot be acknowledged or like it has to be denied at all costs like she it's just so foreclosed from the beginning the idea that she could communicate with him in that way that it like yeah just upends the entire universe and that's maybe what I was trying to get at before where I find that like really fascinating that the film is so clear that there could be a really simple solution to this but instead Ackerman like the character of Ackerman like spins out in the way that John Dielman spins out in that film right that like one little thing goes off and it's like there is no going back now it's like we're now on this like course of entropy that's going to take us into this yeah it's notable that like the one time she does kind of try to talk to him she does this thing where she speaks quietly when there's noise and she she yells (laughs) at him when he stops making noise which is pretty which is a pretty good bit yeah she tries to talk to him through the bathroom door at one point right but he can't hear her because she's too quiet yeah exactly there are a lot um, of good bits in it it's really i feel like it's um yeah she's a great performer th- there are parts of this actually and maybe it's because i just saw a new leaf for the first time a couple months ago but i i, I occasionally thought of elaine may when it was starting to get really mm-hmm. in the especially the later like really quite manic parts when she's like holed up like an army captain or whatever with her with her monitors Another classic in the Jewish comedy tradition. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, the ending of I actually find the kind of the latter part of it very interesting. It's like you know, as as Miriam already said, it's like the isolation that develops in the last half of it is interesting because it's not like it ever totally loses the aspect of it being comedy, but it does become something else in the last sections. And so we can say that like at a certain point, the character, the male character leaves and uh, Ackerman hears him leave and she knows that he's going to be gone for a few days but she still can't come out of her room and so she waits in her room until because his suitcase is still in the hallway so she knows that he's going to come back at some point so she waits in her room and it becomes this sort of like endurance test where the um like she calls a local grocery store to bring her food and to bring her like a camping stove way ahead of her time and, by the way ordering her groceries exactly. delivered like, to her house it was a little pandemic-y it was a little oh, that's uh, so true i watched it during the pandemic that's so true <laughs> but then the other great part of that is that like at one point i think it, it's happened a little earlier before she locks herself in the room when he leaves she drags a video camera out of the closet and sets a video camera up out over the street so that she can run a live feed uh into her bedroom so she can have this television set in her bedroom where she can see him coming and going in the street and again it's like it invokes this whole there's a lot of stuff going on there like it invokes this kind of reflexive dimension about like her as a director right like at one point she points out because the camera like the television is facing the camera it's not facing her in the frame it's facing us and she points him out walking on the street to us the audience in this very like weirdly overt way Mm -hmm. and it's like the idea of like her kind of like trying to direct or track his movements as the director there's that um but then also there's this like kind of real almost painful sense of isolation in terms of like that she sort of is compelled to do everything she can to put more and more kind of like 
material or mediation between her and this man. It's like her trying to escape as much as she can by going inward. And the idea of like the camera as something that keeps him away. And again, just to make an equivalently silly comparison as I made with David Wayne in the first film here, I, I can't help it. It made me think of the, the finale of uh, Nathan Fielder's <laughs> show. This idea of like the camera is <laughs> something that necessarily like distances you from people rather than connects you. Um, anyway, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Did you guys have other thoughts hey, about the kind Nathan, of Nathan, for you, ending? more Jewish comedy. There you go. Exactly. Um, no, that's a that's. I actually, I'm so embarrassed. I still haven't seen the Nathan Fielder stuff, so I need to catch up with that. I guess I I don't have much more to say about this film, but I did want to say before we end this episode that one of my well, we're talking about um, uh, Ackerman's uh, dom- these domestic comedies is like one of my favorite bits that I find so funny. Um, is uh, in Jean Dielman when Jean Dielman overcooks the potatoes and has this like little freak out. And I just find like there's nothing both more tragic and like kind of funny than overcooking something. Can't mm-hmm. can't go back. <laughs> it's just like her complete freak out in that moment. I've always found very, um, uh, and, I, and I feel like you see that yeah, it's so wonderful to see her in all these, all these films and and, and in these different ways she uses um, um, domestic space, you know, that it, and it's, um, I was thinking back in um, well, like, well, what you we were saying about this film, I, I find that the heterosexuality stuff is, is really a stretch. I really do think it's about someone being very tall and someone being very short and it's like these <laughs> kind of things. But, but I do think going back to couch in New York that, um, you know, we talked about the sort of anti-innuendo. It is interesting that like the lack of sexuality in that movie, you know, mm-hmm. like the lack of, I mean, and that's like, that's, I think, true of, as we mentioned with A Sleepless in Seattle, is very true of certain certain um, contemporary romantic comedies of the time. But as opposed to, I think, some of the more like code and certainly pre-code romantic comedies but um i think that um i think you know it's a bit um yeah it does feel in that film it feels a bit missing and a bit uh, neurotic to not have that sexual Mm -hmm. element miriam would uh couch in new york have worked better for you if there'd been more of a height difference between the two leads (laughs) there you go you solved it (laughs) boom easy fix they can we, we we can we can we can fix that in post it can, it can, it can be redone <laughs> it's true well i mean i was gonna say too in terms of just sort of like the general comedy stuff i know uh oh i think miriam you you kind of just had seen family business uh her short that we talked about um a few episodes ago i think now and i so i want i know you wanted to maybe mention that here too because it's like there again of course she's doing the wonderful like chaplin-esque kind of silent comedy thing and i have one thing i wanted to say about the chaplin connection but um but i know you wanted to to mention that film a little oh, bit oh yeah that's something i saw just recently and um and i and yeah i was thinking about that film in um when you were talking about language like i find the greatest scene when she's coaching you know the the french woman how to speak french better and she says you mm. have to say tugger not tougher tugger <laughs> you know and it's just but the rhythm in that of course is so good and that rhythm is kind of and that like is what's i feel like you can see a rhythm in that film that would have worked better with something like cash in new york and and that does work in a man with a suitcase I think we, we we get a little bit of that with um 
with the friend, I think, in Captain New York when they're kind of scheming about to take over the yes. uh, the practice and they're kind of they've got the the rat-a-tat dialogue about the about transference and all that stuff. We get a, a tiny little taste of that. And we also get that strange scene that we haven't mentioned uh, t- to date in the restaurant with uh, with yeah. William Hurt and his friend and the innocent diner caught between them. Um, which also very much calls back to um to family business i think there's definitely something to be said for the idea that like the kind of comedic chops on display in family business yeah that i don't know i just feel like ackerman had kind of set up structures for herself that denied her the freedom to do that in something like coach in new york it's like she was trying to do something different and so she couldn't just yeah follow her like comedic instincts which are incredible you know when mm-hmm. they're unleashed um but it doesn't but yeah i don't know oh go ahead well, i was just gonna say you know it reminds me of a lot of i mean i mentioned um man's favorite sport but there's um uh um like i feel like uh, it reminds me of some of uh lubich's attempt at doing screwball comedies i'm mean, not lubich um of uh bogdanovich's attempt at doing oh, yeah. screwball comedies where he's like trying to replicate them but they come out so strange like um i can't remember what it's called though like what's up doc well what's up doc is is i feel like a better example but then he did one more recently with um oh right squirrels to the nuts squirrels Squirrels to the nuts nuts. of course the reference and that one is also very strange and then um a film i completely love but that also was a complete critical um and box office bomb was how do you know the James L. Brooks James L. Brooks film and yeah. and I think it had a similar yeah similar uh, reaction to this film but I feel like that, that they're all doing something interesting with the genre in a way because they're not you know they're not they're not making it easy but they're making it in some ways you're just more more self aware and slowed down and just weird. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I recently just saw What's Up Doc after uh, Bogdanovich's passing. I saw that for the first time. That movie is wild. Yes, and I like direct remake of like, you know, like bringing a baby in. So yeah, that movie's weird. So, and if you see the Squirrels to the Nuts, it's even weirder. And all, I, and I, I love all of those weird films. So yes, I, I think as much as, you know, this isn't her, I feel like... Who, fans of those weird kind of screw of those like um almost failed but maybe masterpieces who can tell like i feel like that those that this film fits in those films those yeah films. definitely and like I, I feel like if you go in with even a mildly open mind to couch in new york like you'll enjoy it i mean this is the thing as i think it just really suffered from being presented to people as a romantic comedy like as a straight kind of like studio comedy i just think it really suffered from that because it really isn't doing that it like really the beats are all different it doesn't deliver the kinds of things you expect those films to deliver to you and like and it just is asking you to do it to do a bit more work than those films do but it also doesn't make clear that it wants you to do that work so it's just it's a weird mix but i think it's perfectly enjoyable i mean i think there's some great stuff in it. i think the i think it's the poster's fault honestly <laughs> yeah the poster does not help the poster really really sets you up for uh for like a nora efron type experience but there's also like i mean this was like you know not quite 10 years after ishtar came out i think and then um i think if you like claudio Claudio Weil also had some really horrible experiences in the studio system. And, you know, unfortunately this was, well, I mean, we, we were talking about Nora Ephron and, um, and I think Nancy Byers was beginning work at this time, beginning directing, but there was, you know, I think it was really, I think that um, 
there were some negative press campaigns for women directors, like Mm. before the film even came out. So I think it was hard to, I think you have to take that into account too. For sure. That's really true. I had not thought about it in that kind of like historical moment, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, It's also interesting too, because like you, you would think that this film would maybe have been able to escape some of that because it was so like, it was such an international production, right? It's like it had producers from, uh, Germany and France and then New York. And I actually meant to mention this producer uh, earlier uh, when we were talking about the film. Um, the, the film's New York producer was a woman named Robin O'Hara, who was quite like really important in the independent New York filmmaking scene uh, during that those decades. Like she was, I guess, very involved in a number of kind of like filmmakers' careers and getting a lot of films made. And, oh, Scott McCauley's um, yeah. partner. Yeah, exactly. And I was gonna I was gonna mention it because he Scott McCauley reached out when we started the podcast. Uh, they Robin O'Hara and him and someone else I believe started this company, Forensic Films, and they were just very encouraging about the podcast. And so I wanted to to give them a nice uh, to shout out and say that I was very sorry to hear about Robin O'Hara's passing. We would have loved to have uh, invited her on the podcast if that had been possible, um, yeah. because it would have been quite something to hear about getting this film made. Uh, but anyway, I'll just to say that I think you're right, Marion, that like even despite the kind of international positioning of the film my guess is that it very much fell into that sort of a a hole or a trap unfortunately yeah but it's it's um yeah it's absolutely enjoyable and i hope that i hope that listeners who haven't seen either of these watch both of them and you know expect a you know um you know you're it's not a david wayne movie but it's it's no. really funny <laughs> um all right well i have like one more thing i was going to say about chaplin and simon before we um start to wrap up but uh did you have anything you wanted to add there? well the only thing i would i would add is just to say that w- at this point in the podcast having done six months of watching mostly ackerman films and not a lot of other new films frankly I have this like weird, almost parasocial relationship with Ackerman at this point where like, especially cause she's in her movies so much that now we get to the point where she makes a movie that people don't like and is a flop and like clearly causes her some pain. And I, I feel really bad. <laughs> like, it yeah. makes me feel bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It was causing me a little bit of pain to think about the idea of her leaving cinema because of, uh, of this movie. And and I do think I, maybe, maybe we could say to like start wrapping up. I do think that like critics have, have gone back to it and have, shifted i do think there are people who defend this film like i believe dominic paini wrote a defense of it in cahier du cinema at one point and like there are people who who like it and i think i think the general consensus now is often like it's much more interesting than it was given credit for at the time but a lot of people still kind of rank it fairly low in ackerman's work sometimes like programmatically so like i don't really understand this like immediate disregard for this film right out of the gate i don't think that's exactly fair but um same thing happened to lane may i'm telling you yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's true. Uh, and Claudia Weil, man, I really want to rewatch Girlfriends. That's neither here nor there, but Claudia Weil's Girlfriends is a great film and everybody should watch it. Um, but the thing I was going to say about uh, Acker- about Ackerman and Chaplin was that uh, like she often describes herself as Chaplin-esque and uh, her performances and this kind of like, yeah, bodily choreography she does yes. is related to that. And I came across this like incredible uh, quotation by a philosopher who I love named Stanley Cavell, who I can't remember if I've mentioned here or not, but um, I've actually written about Cavell and Ackerman together and maybe I'll have time to talk about that more when we get to like have to eat later. But uh, 
but yeah, I came across this quote, this article of Cavell talking about Keaton and Chaplin. And I just thought it was so fascinating that I wanted to bring it into context with Ackerman. So of course, for people who aren't silent film nerds, like Keaton and Chaplin are often um, posed against each other as these kind of like opposites in terms of silent film comedy, embodying something very different. Uh, and, and like, you can only like one, you can't like them both or something. And Cavell, um, makes this sort of great point about it where he's talking about how they both actually are making a comedy of the fact that, um, you know, human, human beings are sort of maybe fated to, pr to pursue happiness and that under certain conditions, they might actually be able to achieve happiness. They, they just give very different pictures of what is required to achieve happiness. Mm. And so he says, uh, you know, Keaton shows the conditions necessary for happiness to be essentially those of virtuousness or of conscientiousness, uh, for example, of courage, of temperance, loyalty, and an aptness of the body that Spinoza called wisdom, an ability to maintain your poise no matter what happens to your plans or the outside of you. Chaplin shows these conditions necessary for happiness to be those of free imagination, especially the imagination of happiness itself an ability to gather your spirits no matter what has happened to them or no matter what has happened to the inside of you. And like, I just, I thought this was such a beautiful image. The idea of like Keaton is kind of like, yeah, fighting the sort of like the, the environment, like having to kind of like respond always. And the like happiness comes from being able to like respond to the environment and that Chaplin, it's about being able to kind of like marshal your inner resources and imagination as a way to kind of get through life. And I feel like there is something important to be said about how that relates to Ackerman and I'm still trying to figure out what it is but I've just I loved that quotation so much it's something I think it's something about how Ackerman doesn't perceive humans as fated to pursue happiness I think she perceives humans as fated to like endure and for her it's this question of like inner and outer resources in terms of endurance rather than like enduring suffering maybe but then trying to find happiness I don't know this is what I mean I'm, I'm still thinking about this but about I just this love too. the I love that and I, I yeah I absolutely see the comparisons and um I need to read your paper on Cavell and Ackerman <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well maybe by the end of the podcast we'll have figured out where she fits in the silent film exactly I'm, gonna... I'm not sure quite sure yet either <laughs> Me either. I'm going to keep thinking about it. And then if people have thoughts about it, like podcast listeners, feel free to send us Twitter messages or however you want to get in touch with us. That would be great. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. Simon, is there anything else we need to do before we wrap up here? I don't think so. Kate, what are we, what are we doing next month? Do we want to, do we want to talk about that at all? Uh, I think we can. Um, it was funny because we, we talked about it a little last time and then you bleeped it to like, keep it a secret from people. So I'm never actually sure. If yeah. I, I will see how I feel when I get to the edit. <laughs> idea for promoting or for hiding um but i think next time we are talking about Chantel ackerman's musicals which is so exciting this is going to be that's going to be a fun episode um we're talking about les années uh, oh my god i can't do is an 80 yeah but the, the, there you go yeah um um and then golden 80s and also one day pina asked the documentary about pina bausch so that will be very fun that will be amazing i will be listening Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much, Miriam, of course, for joining us and chopping it up. And yeah. uh, thank you, Kate. And thank you, listeners. And uh, as always, feel free to rate or review us um, because you never know. People might people who don't have a Chantal Ackerman news alert uh, set up <laughs> might want to might want to find out about us. Uh, all right. Thank you. So thanks. Much. It was so nice to talk to you again. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, it was great to have you on. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. We'll be back in a month's time.